Well, the singing's been wonderful. Larry's a great song leader, isn't he? We're thankful to God for that. This is the last of the series that are on the science subject tonight, so I want to take just a minute here to say a few things to you. First of all, I want you to know that I'm not taking this lightly, that uh, the last two mornings, my prayers and my morning prayers have been, dear God, help me in some way to help this group of people be in awe of our great God and be more respectful than ever of the wonder and the power of his creation. That's the goal of a series like this. Second, I want to mention our IT guys. I fussed a little bit this earlier this afternoon. But I want you to know Greg's a champion. And he's really been behind the scenes. When you do a series of lessons like this, it's absolutely dependent on the visuals. I think you can see that. And it's a lot of work in the background. And so I expect you to hug him. <laughs> Maybe not everybody, okay. <laughs> but he's been wonderful. And you couldn't do it without him. And by the way, he got this thing working. So he says, we're going to see. So that's good. I've done this in quite a few places, and you never know what you're going to get at a given church with the device. And I have messed up so many things. So I bought my own. And it's good, except when it doesn't work. But thank you, Greg. It's in a very special way for the work you've done to help make this happen. And to all of you, you've been an encouragement, and uh, I think you've been receptive to this. I've watched the audience pretty well. You get an A for paying attention and uh, not falling asleep and uh, interested in this. And so I understand it's like being fed by a water hose, a fire hose, with a lot of material, and in a lot of cases, not something you have a background in. And so that makes it more difficult. But I hope the major points have gotten across. That God has made an amazing universe. And in our age, more than ever before in the history of mankind, we should be better able to praise him. And that's what I hope to get across again this evening. So, you see there? Molecular machines evolved or designed. I could not have given this lecture 50 years ago at all because we didn't know anything about them. Now every day we're learning new things about molecular machines. And so the question tonight for you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, when I get through explaining to you what we know or a little bit of what we know about molecular machines, can you honestly in your heart believe that these things came about by natural causes without any design behind them at all? They just came about by natural causes. Or is there a much more reasonable explanation that they were in fact designed by a magnificent God who had us in mind and were made in his image? So, our passage has been Romans 1, hasn't it? And we're going to start there again tonight. 
as the scriptural basis for what we're doing. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I'm going to go on a little bit tonight, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, but were, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their own imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Is our world becoming darker? I think in a lot of ways it is. And when folks give up God in their thinking, the natural progress of that is to turn to darker things. And God forbid that we go there. All right. Romans 1 is the scriptural basis for this continuing series in science where we turn not to this book, but to God's other book, the book of the natural world. So, as I've told you, this book, William Paley's Natural Theology, was the standard curriculum in the early 1800s in, the Eastern, in, in Europe. If you were a college student in those days, you would take a class in natural theology. And that's the evidences of God in the natural world. That's what you were taught. And this particular text started with a great example. And what I'm going to do for you tonight is start with this book, The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins, who is a modern-day professor of biology at Oxford University and has been appointed as the professor to teach the public about science. And he's written a host of books. The Blind Watchmaker is one of the most famous of his books. He makes a play off of the watchmaker argument from William Paley's book in the 1800s. So I'm going to share with you some things out of this book and just to show you what these folks do with what they've observed in nature. So I'm going to start in chapter 1. He says, we animals, that give you an idea where he's coming from, we animals are the most complicated things in the known universe. I can say amen to that. The difference is one of complexity. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Okay? Biology is the study of complicated things, including you and me, that give the appearance of having been designed. I'm skipping now. The process by which an airliner came into existence is not fundamentally mysterious to us because humans built it. Would you say amen to that? Yeah. What about our bodies? Each one of us is as a machine, like an airliner, only much more complicated. Were we designed on a drawing board too, and were our parts assembled by a skilled engineer? The answer is no. It is a surprising answer. And we have known and understood it only for a century or so. Were you designed? No. Airliners were, but not you. 
And he proceeds to say this about Mr. Paley. The watchmaker of my title is borrowed from a famous treatise by the 18th century theologian William Paley. His Natural Theology, published in 1802, is the best-known exposition of the argument from design. Is that what I've been saying all weekend? Always the most influential of the arguments for the existence of God. It is a book I greatly admire, for in his own time its author succeeded in doing what I am struggling to do now, says Mr. Dawkins. He had a point to make. He passionately believed in it, and he spared no effort to ram it home, clearly. I like to read this because it gives me my excuse for ramming things home and getting passionate. I make no excuse, ladies and gentlemen, for being passionate about this subject. Folks are passionate about evolution. Why, I do not know, but they are. He had a proper reverence, and he spared no effort to ram it home clearly, and he had a proper reverence for the complexity of the living world. He saw that it demands a very special kind of explanation. The only thing he got wrong, admittedly quite a big thing, was the explanation itself. He gave the traditional religious answer to the riddle, but he articulated it more clearly and convincingly than anyone had before. Paley begins his natural theology with this famous passage. And I'd like to read it to you in British English. <laughs> so we're in Mr. Paley's natural theology class, ladies and gentlemen. In crossing a heath, suppose I pitched my foot against a stone and would ask how that stone came to be there. I might possibly answer that for anything I knew to the contrary, it had lain there forever. Nor would it perhaps be very easy to show the absurdity of this answer. But suppose I had found a watch upon the ground, and it should be inquired how the watch happened to be in that place. I should hardly think of the answer which I had given before, that for anything I knew the watch might have always been there. No, the watch must have had a maker. And that there must have existed sometime at some place or another an artificer who formed it for a purpose which it actually had to answer, who comprehended its construction and designed its use. There must have been a watchmaker. That's Paley's argument. Now I'm back to quoting from Dawkins. Paley's argument is made with passionate sincerity and is informed by the best biological scholarship of his day, but it is wrong, gloriously and utterly wrong. The analogy between a telescope and an eye, between a watch and a living organism, is false. All appearances to the contrary the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and springs and plans their interconnection with a future purpose in his mind's eye. 
natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparent purposeful form of all life has no purpose. It has no mind. It has no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of a watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. That's how he starts the book. And for 300 pages, he tries to convince you that all the stuff that looks like it's been designed was not. And I want you to understand what that means for him and for everybody of his ilk. Let me put the quote down here at the bottom of his picture. All appearances to the contrary, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics acted upon by natural selection. In other words, you look around you, all the human beings that you see here, the way you came about was the blind forces of physics acted upon by natural selection. Darwin's theory, ladies and gentlemen, is the way you got here is by small-scale changes in things over millions of years that add up to make you. And the only thing needed is the blind forces of physics. There's no purpose. You were not planned. You are the accidental result of a long process of evolution. That's precisely what these folks believe. And they believe it with all their hearts enough to write a 300-page book about it and several others. You got that? So, what I'd like to talk to you about tonight, and I'd love to visit with Mr. Dawkins about that as well, The argument from design, Mr. Dawkins, you said has always been the strongest argument for the existence of God, and I believe that too, from the natural world. Let's look at it again. I told you last night there were three great discoveries. The universe had a beginning. The science is now telling us that. Second, the universe, our solar system, and the earth are remarkably fine-tuned to support life on earth since the beginning. There's overwhelming evidence, ladies and gentlemen, that in order to have us, everything it's, we've talked about has to be what? Some of you got it. And I mean everywhere you look. It looks to me like, if you're looking at this honestly, somebody messed with this. It didn't happen by natural causes. And finally, this third great thing that we've discovered in the last hundred years is that even the simplest forms of life at the biochemical level contain massive amounts of digital information. Now, we've got a lot of computer guys in here. And computer guys know good and well that computer programs are designed by an intelligent source. 
Nobody believes some computer is going to start functioning without somebody intelligent designing a program that it learns how to follow because you give it the rules. But these guys think your bodies and all living things that are much more complicated than any computer ever dreamed of being, if computers dream, came about by natural causes. Folks, not only do they have information, but that information is being used at an incredible rate of speed. Did I show you that earlier today? To build stuff by the thousands, and what we've learned in addition, is that to get that done, there's little machines working on it automatically. So let's examine that a little further. So I want to give you a quote from Darwin's famous book, 1859, The Origin of Species. I say it's the most world-changing book ever written other than the Bible. And one of the reasons Darwin's book became so influential is because Darwin spent a lot of time in this book criticizing his own theory and telling you what was wrong with it and then explaining that away. So here's a statement. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. I like it when a man is honest enough to say, here's a weakness in my theory, if it could be shown. There's any complex organ that couldn't have been formed by little tiny changes over long periods of time. My theory breaks down. Well, I would like to break down his theory. And I truly believe if Darwin were alive today and knew what we now know about living things, he would have broken his theory down a long time ago. Because it doesn't work. So my question to you is going to be, let's take the cell. I'm going to present the cell as our case tonight, ladies and gentlemen. The simple cell, pardon the expression, there's no such thing as a simple cell. We could well call the cell a self-replicating nanoscale robot. And here's why. It's self-replicating because it can re reproduce itself. Class. Did you know that today your body sloughed off 90 billion cells? Kids, that's why you need to take a bath. <laughs> you know the worst place where you slough off cells? Your skin. So you've got to wash it off, kids. You begin to stink. When you slough off cells or they die, you need to replace them. Any biology student knows that your body replaces those cells by the process of mitosis, cell division. Kids have heard of this? I think so. If you had a biology, you have. Mitosis means producing, producing a copy of the cell so that one cell becomes two. And it's an exact copy. Every cell does it. 
So it's self-replicating. Think about that, class. And I'm going to show you a video of that shortly. Next, it's nanoscale. We talked about that earlier, didn't we? A nanometer is one billionth of a meter, and that's the scale cells function off, down at the nanoscale. I forget who I was talking to in this audience earlier today. Oh, it was you, wasn't it? You're working in the nano industry. It's a whole industry to engineer things at the nano level now, trying to imitate what nature does. And what we've learned is nature's doing amazing things, way better than we ever thought of doing. We can just figure out how they do it. But of course, this wasn't designed. But we're trying to design things to imitate it. So nanoscale, because it's at a very small scale. And thirdly, they're robots because, listen closely, its activities are carried out unconsciously and automatically by precision molecular machines that follow ordinary physical laws. And they're doing it all the time. That's what's so new here. And we've studied a lot of them now. So what's a molecular machine? It's a natural device on the molecular scale, with few exceptions, made of? Proteins. And you know how the body builds proteins, because I taught you that this afternoon. And the test is tomorrow. <laughs> Able to convert chemical energy to produce linear motion, like this, or rotary motion, like that, or control biological functions, a lot of them. There are machines doing that all the time. Here's one. Myoglobin is an oxygen storage machine in your muscles. I could show you a picture of it. It's 153 amino acids long. And it's very busy. Don't have time to talk about it at length. Kinesin and dynines. Kinesins are involved in cargo movement. Do you know there's stuff moving around in your body all the time? Somebody's got to move it. Kinenes, kinesins are the guys that help move stuff. They're little machines. Dynenes are also involved in moving stuff and the beating of cilia, which we'll come back to a little later. And they're both involved in cell division like mitosis. Busily engaged and we're going to show you some of the pictures of what they do. Kids, you can go watch a video about kinesin walkers. It's called The Life and the Day of a Kinesin Walker. And it's an explanation of how much work kinesin walkers do. They're busy little guys. And class, what do you think they are? <laughs> Good. Kinesins and dynein walkers. Here's a picture. These little guys right here, those are little proteins, not so little, but they walk along highways and they carry heavy stuff. Look, this stuff here, that, that's probably 10 times as heavy as this little guy, and they carry them where they need to be. That's happening all the time in your body. Kinesin walkers are incredible little proteins. 
So class, are you ready for the first video? We're going to show you a video of the cells division. And this is another video by Drew Berry, whom I introduced to you earlier. He's an animator who lives in Australia. He's done amazing jobs because you can't see this stuff with the visuals in a normal typed uh, microscope. So he's trying to make us see it. Well, what you're first going to see in this video is an actual picture of a cell division. This is a live cell here, and you're going to watch it divide. And Greg is going to be my start and stop guy, right, Greg? Greg is ready. So let's watch this live cell. The first part of this is an actual picture under an optical microscope, because you can see that. So let's go. So you're looking here at the cellular material. This is actually the DNA. And watch as it now starts to divide. You can see the different parts of the DNA are splitting apart. And as the process takes place, eventually it divides up and divides into one. One cell now becomes, stop right there, one cell that had all the DNA information and everything else in that cell has now become two cells with the precise DNA over here that it has over here and all the other material that goes with any cell. So what was one cell has now become two. And folks, I don't have time tonight. I'd love to show you how the DNA, all that stuff I showed you this morning, how it gets copied verbatim so that the exact copy is over here in this new cell. You need exactly the same copy, folks. And this happens thousands and billions of times in your body. And almost every time it's perfect. You think there are ever mistakes? Once in a while, things will go wrong. Did you know you your body has a built-in mechanism to fix mistakes in copying DNA? Not perfect, but it's close to it. Sure looks like a design to me. But no, Dawkins would say it's a blind watchmaker. All you need is blind forces of physics. Let's continue. Because now we're going to show this again. And this time, we're going to go down and focus on one particular chromosome. So here we go. See, we're going to pick out one Metaphase chromosome, right there. Stop right there just a minute, Greg. This is one piece of that whole process. Is everybody with me? We're focusing in now. And I want to go down inside of this, and let's see what's happening as that cell divides and makes two copies of the DNA material. Well, look, the DNA material is already... Whoops, I see there, I hit the wrong button, Greg. You're going to have to save me. Get me back to where we were. Okay. You get to see this again, because my stupid thumb hit the wrong button. Pardon me. But it won't hurt you to see this again. While we're getting there, you can see all the chromosomes. There's a bunch of them. In humans, we have 23, right? We're going to focus in on one, on this second one. So here we go. We're starting again. Here's your entire cell. And it's starting to divide now. And we're going to focus in on this one piece right here. And we're going to look at what happens now to this metaphase chromosome. Stop right there. What we've got is two copies already. Can you see that? One is behind the other. The copy's already been made. 
So I'm leaving out two-thirds of the story here. All I'm going to talk about here is how do these two copies get separated and split up into two different cells? So here we go. Two copies of your DNA. This is a particular chromosome. So we're going to focus in down here on this particular. This is called the kinetochore. When that word stop right there, this is the kinetochore. It's not bright red, class. It's colored that way by Drew Berry to make you look at it. And you see all these roads coming out of here? Both sides? We're going to talk about those. Those roads have been built by your cells. And they're coming out of both sides of the kinetic core here. Because how does this thing now split up? Well, what we're going to do is focus down in here on this kinetic core because that's where the action is, class. And remember, we focused in on one chromosome. The same thing's happening on all the other 23, 22, at the same time. Okay, go. Let's focus in a little more. <clears throat> a giant molecular machine, stop right there, that controls chromosomal movement. So here's the kinetic core, here are the chromosomes. Here are the little tubules, microtubules they're called. Those are the highways that have been constructed. And by the way, I'll just tell you right here, those highways are built by, what do you think? Proteins that are very active in the kinetic core as they construct this highway. And over here at the end of those microtubules, they're tearing the highway down, just like any good government. They build them, and then they tear them down. Only in the cell, it's critically important to tear down the highways because if you didn't, your cell would get clogged up with highways. So they are broken down and recycled. Looks like a plan to me. Now let's focus in on what's happening as this thing gets ready to separate. So let's go. We're going to focus in now on this giant molecular machine that's going to allow you to separate these two chromosomes. So here's the kinetic core. Now we're going to focus down inside here in the kinetic core. There you see. See all the activity taking place? You see the little microtubules being built right here? There's proteins building that the whole time. Really busy. There's proteins down here doing all kinds of different things. You, you see all the activity taking place? And among other things, there's kinesin and walkers and dynein walkers ready to do their activity, but it's got to come at exactly the right time. So what he does in his visual here is he turns the red into green. It doesn't do that. But green means go, right? Stop right there, Greg, for just a second. So once this stuff turns green, which it doesn't, but it means it's time now, folks, there is built in to these proteins and the process a timing device that says it's exactly the right time to start doing this. Built in. So now let's see what starts happening. Tubules are built. Everything's in the right order. And see the walkers start down here? This is the dynein walkers heading this way. And see the little red things on them? Well, we missed it right there. But you can see them in a minute. See those little red? That's more proteins. He's carrying this load out here this way. And see the guys walking the other way? Those are the kinein walkers. Kinesin walkers, pardon me. And these are more proteins here making sure this orderly fashion takes place. So back and forth. Stop right there. 
The Keynesian workers go this way and carry stuff. The dining workers go this way and carry stuff. And they're like this. You think this is showing how fast that happens? No. It goes way faster than that, but they're trying to get the picture to you. So let's go on. Now we're back out on the higher scale and watch. As the time is right, the kinetic core is right now. All these things are taking place on both sides. And now the time is right and you separate the two and they divide and they go back into the process of forming from one cell two cells. Stop right there. That just happened in your body thousands of times. And what made it happen is little machines that are working their little hearts out, doing stuff that has to be done or it wouldn't happen. And they're all, they don't run into each other. Nothing bumps into anything. They just do it. Folks, Henry Ford never built a factory that can touch this. And we haven't touched the hem of the garment of everything going on in there. You tell me that you sincerely believe that process came about by small-scale changes over millions of years, little changes adding up one at a time. I'd say, Charles Darwin, come take a look. Folks, this was designed... It didn't just look like it was designed. It was designed. Go ahead. I think that's the end of this one, isn't it? I hope you were properly introduced to Kinesian and Dineen Walkers. Well, you weren't, because there's a whole lot more to tell you. But I'm going on to cilia. Kids, you know what cilia are? They're hairs. You have lots of hairs in you, not just this. You have hairs in your nose, right? Not pleasant to talk about, but you do. You have hairs lots of places, folks, and they are critically important to you. If we had time class, I could tell you tonight the chemistry of building hairs. It's an extremely complicated process that involves kinesin and dining workers to build hairs because you got to move stuff. Hairs build from the bottom up. The kinesins take the stuff up as you build it, and the dinings take stuff back that doesn't need to be used, and you build hairs. So can somebody tell me where one of the most important places inside your body you have hairs? Your lungs. Thank you. I think I have a picture of that. Yes. There you go. Here at the entrance of your lungs, right here, the primary bronchus, that's what you got. Lots of hairs. So quit smoking. Because smoking clogs all this up and it doesn't let those hairs work like they should. Hairs are doing this. I wish I had time to describe for you the chemistry that lets hairs do that. 
You say, what's the big deal about that? You want to know there's a lot of chemistry doing that. And there's thousands of them doing it. And your body is building them all the time. Guess what? There's little machines building hairs. And it's life-changing. Oh, my. I really would love to spend a whole day on cilia with you. And you say, well, that's silly. No, it isn't. It's fascinating. But I've got to get to one important thing tonight before I finish. I call this the champion hair. It's not a hair. It's a tail. The bacterial flagellum is a rotary filament. It's a tail. And it does this. Let me get to my page here. Because I want to give you some specifics about this particular little guy. The motor that drives this little filament in a bacteria rotates 6,000 to 17,000 rotations per minute. 6,000 per minute, up to 17,000. It drives the filament that it turns anywhere from 200 to 1,000 RPMs. That's 17 times per second, that little hair. And the amazing thing is that little bacteria's tail can be going clockwise at 7,000 or 1,000 RPMs for that filament. And within a microsecond, it can be going counterclockwise at the same speed. Howard Berg, who's a Harvard biophysicist, has called the bacterial flagellum and its motor the most efficient machine in the universe. And he's an evolutionist. But he's telling the truth. So what I'm about to describe to you, class, is the tail of a one-celled organism. And the first time I did this, my Marilyn was sitting right here, and she said, you lost me. I said, what else is new? She said, no, you got to keep it tied to something. So listen to me, class. I don't want to lose you. We're going to watch a video put out by a Japanese company, and it, it focuses in on a bacteria that's the most studied bacteria on the face of the earth. It's called E. coli. Have you heard of it? E. coli can kill you, the bad guys. That's why we studied it a lot. And what we've learned is about this flagellum, what allows it to move around. It's amazing because what we want to do is interfere with that where he's the bad guy. But there's a good strain of E. coli, several of them. And in your intestines, Class, not a very pleasant subject. I just had supper too. But inside your intestines, there are thousands upon thousands of E. coli swimming around right now while you sit there. And if they weren't, you'd be dead. Did you know that? No, you didn't know that. But I'm telling you, 
your intestines has a biome associated with it that's got lots of things in it that don't belong inside of you except that they do. I hope you can sleep tonight. But one thing for sure, there's lots of little E. coli swimming around inside of you. So what I'm about to talk to you about, don't tell me you don't get it. It's happening inside of you right now. And it's life-threatening if it doesn't work right. So, it's got a machine in it. I think that's our next slide, isn't it? Yep, here we go. Greg, fingers ready? All right, you go ahead. So you're watching a live picture here. Now, these are some actual bacteria swimming around. These guys are pretty good, but you're about to see the E. coli here in a second. Here comes some E. coli. Whoa, stop right there. Those guys can move it. And the reason is E. coli have four of those flagellas, anywhere from four to ten. And they can wrap the flagella around each other and go really fast and move that little guy around. So E. coli are especially efficient swimmers. And they can change direction almost instantaneously. And folks, I have to say this again. If I could spend a time with you right now, I could explain the biochemistry. Listen to me closely. When light hits that bacteria, there's a chemical reaction that takes place on the surface of that little bacteria that sends a message to the second layer, which sends one to the third layer, which goes through a series of six chemical reactions inside, which eventually changes a little chemical down here, which tells the bacteria to turn. It actually tells the flagellum to go from clockwise to counterclockwise. That is a complicated chemical reaction that goes step by step just to make that thing turn a different direction. Folks, I'm trying to get across to you that everything you look at has a complex system that has to be balanced and that works. So, here we go. Go ahead, Greg. You see the yellow coli swimming around here? I mean, they're fast. This is a live picture. Could be inside your intestines. Now we're going to blow it up. This is the visual now. This is the, the image, the animation. Stop right there, because this is the bacteria, and here's the little filament coming out here that's connected through the cell wall right there to this little bacteria. Now, how big are those bacteria? Turn your finger up in front of you sideways and look at your fingernail. Everybody do it. I'm asking you to do this. Look at your fingernail from the side. You could stack a thousand of those bacteria on your fingernail in that width, at least. Little guys. And they've got a tail. In fact, they have four tails, most of them. All right, let's look at this a little bit now. Go ahead. Here's the filament, and here's the hook. And the hook comes down here and penetrates through the cell wall. We're going to see the names here in just a second. The filament and the hook, both critically important. But down we go now inside the cell, and you see the cell wall here. Stop there just a minute, Greg. See, the cell wall has three parts, and through the cell wall you have this a motor underneath, the basal body this is called, and you see all the different parts to it here. We'll talk about those in just a minute, but we're going down through the cell wall here and then keep going. Here's the motor and the basal body 
And we're going to point out some of the parts. Here's the rod and the ring. Stop right there. You've got rings and a rod and these various parts. All of this makes up, it's very much like an outboard motor, folks, that allows that filament to do this or this. That's it. But this motor class is better than any motor any human ever built. And it does it automatically. Keep going. There's the three layers, the inner membrane, stop right there, the inner membrane, the peptidoglycan layer, and the outer membrane. And you've got this thing sticking through it here with a motor that drives that filament. Keep going. Stop right there. This piece is called the stator. Class, watch me. If a motor's turning like this, do you think it vibrates? Of course it does. You have to stabilize it. So the stator is connected to the middle layer with various stobs that stabilize that motor so it can rotate 17,000 times a minute and not vibrate the thing to death. It's built in. Got it? Go ahead. Oh, stop right there. I meant to say one other thing. I don't have time to tell you about this. What makes it go around? It's an ion imbalance in there. It's a chemical imbalance that allows that to happen across the stator. I'd love to tell you the chemistry of that. We will wait for another day. But this thing it uses almost no energy and does incredible things. If we could ever harness as human beings, how to construct anything half as good as that, we'd not have energy problems. Keep going. There's the rotor down at the bottom, which is your motor. It's amazing what it can do. And now, here's stop right there. Here's what we're going to do next class. And this is kind of the exclamation point to this entire lecture. Listen to me. Not only does the motor exist and function at an amazing level constantly, and it's going on in your body with thousands of little creatures all the time that keeps you alive. In addition to that class, when that bacteria divides by the process of mitosis, it does not duplicate the flagellum when the copy's made. So when that new little cell comes about, it has to build the flagellum. And in this case, four of them. Takes it about 20 minutes to rebuild the flagellum. And we know exactly how it does it. Because we've studied this little guy. And if you can interrupt the building of the flagellum, you can kill that bacterium. And lots of other ways too. But class, get me. I'm going to show you now how this little guy builds its flagellum back again just by nature. It just does it. There's no straw boss. The timing has to be perfect. It starts at the bottom. It builds each piece at the right stage when the timing is right, adds it to it, and then it eventually builds the filament. 
That's like building a tower from the bottom up. You know things have to be done in order, in a timely fashion. You have to bring in the right stuff. Guess who helps with that? Kinesin and dining walkers and lots of other machines. So watch, class, as we build a flagellum without anybody telling it what to do, following normal physical laws. I have to tell you this. Built into the DNA for that little bacteria is a timing process to tell it precisely when the appropriate what class have to be added and when you stop doing that and add the next one. So here we go. Go, Greg. <laughs> Greg, are we moving? Here we go. All right, here's the first one. That's the fly F protein. There's exactly 23 copies of that. That's called the MS ring. Next, the fly G ring is added. Exactly, you see the color there? That's a different protein. The fly M and the fly N proteins are added next on the base, and that forms the base for your motor. And then up through the middle is the rod that's being built. And it's added to one piece at a time, headed up by a cap like this, and watch this cap. As the cap now proceeds, first of all, you've got to build a stator next that stabilizes this organization. And then look, you see how it's drilling through the cell wall? You think that's helpful for a cell where you drill through his wall? No, it is not. But it does it, and it immediately covers it up with rings which form protection for it. Stop right there just a moment. There's a hook cap that comes next because you've got to next build the hook. That's that device that connects the filament to the... Stabilizer, that's built next. Class, i got to stop here. The hook looks like this. It has to be exactly 51 nanometers long. If it's longer than that, it doesn't work. If it's shorter than that, it doesn't work. It's exactly this long. And this cap organizes the building of the hook in the right possession, in the right order, in exactly the right time, without anybody telling it. So I want you to watch the hook being built. Go. Stop right there. When the hook gets finished, the hook cap is dismissed, sent out into the protoplasm, and it's recycled, like everything else. Only our cells do it efficiently, unlike our government. So let's watch the cell, I mean, the, the hook cap be dismissed. And then you have to have the exact right proteins to connect the hook to the filament because they're different. Stop right, well, let's let this build. Go ahead. Right there, stop. Now you got a new cap to help build the filament. And it's precisely five pieces, and we've given that one a name. We call her Twinkle Toes because she's incredible. And I want you to watch as we build a filament. Class, the filament is made up of exactly the same protein one time after another. It's sent up through the middle, comes out the top. You'll see it's coming up out of the middle here one piece at a time, and this little guy directs all those, those proteins fill precisely to their place so that you start building that filament. And sometimes there are 32,000 pieces 
So here we go. I want you to watch Twinkle Toes. See how she's guiding these guys? Only, do you think that's how fast it happens? That's ridiculous. It's way faster than that. So they're going to show you in a minute how why we call her Twinkle Toes. All right, you see what's happening? There's a whole lot more I could tell you about this process, but here we go. Let's do it now. That's closer. Here we go. Twinkle toes, you're amazing. You see all these proteins being added? Folks, that filament is way longer than the bacteria. And it's just been built with no guidance whatsoever, except by DNA. I'll have to tell you, when I look at something as amazing as that, at the microcellular level, surely God must be the most amazing designer that ever was. Every molecular motor has a multiple protein process going on. Each protein is complex and suited for its specific function. Each machine is highly sophisticated, intricate, dynamic, and elegant. And there are thousands of them. And these machines are spontaneously self-assembled in the cell. So Mr. Darwin, not only do you have to show me that this could be there in the first place, but you have to show me that included in it is the factory that builds it. That was formed also by small changes over long periods of time without any guidance, with no purpose. And there it is. If you can believe that, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you need your head examined. Thousands of them in every living cell. Lots of stuff going inside your body while you're sitting listening to a lecture. You better be thanking God. <laughs> What's the best solution to this? I don't know where our headings went, but is this a good answer? They were produced by the blind forces of physics through numerous successive slight modifications produced by random variation acted upon by natural selection. That's Mr. Dawkins' explanation for all of this. Is that more reasonable, or is it more reasonable to say they were designed by a supremely intelligent grand designer? I don't think there's a jury in this country that would pick the first one. but Dawkins does. And so do the head guys in our science community because my position about the grand designer is excluded from discussion. Thank you for allowing me to discuss it here. Anthony Flew, a professor of philosophy, atheist, author, and debater, for years, he debated creationists and belittled us for believing in God. 
When he turned 80 years old, he changed his mind. He wrote a new book called There Is No, I Mean, A God. How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. He changed his mind when he was 80. I love a man who's willing to change his mind about something as significant as this at 80 years old. And here's what he said in an interview. It has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of that first reproducing organism. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looks to me like the work of intelligence. It now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. And what Mr. Flew said is, I've always said my whole life, if the evidence leads me to a conclusion, that's where I'm going. It took him 80 years. But this evidence I'm showing you helped convert that man from a non-believer to a believer in the grand design. I hope somebody listening to this tonight will get your head on straight also. Because folks... What I have told you is nothing compared to what I could tell you. And I know very little compared to what there is to know. Please open your eyes and examine the evidence because it's more reasonable than ever to believe there's a grand, amazing, God who designed this world and us in his image. And if you ever come to believe that, if you're not a believer now, the next thing you need to do is ask yourself, wouldn't such a God want me to know more about him? And that's what this book is about. It's to tell you what God wants you to do in service to him because you're made in his image. And there are lots of people here to help you learn about that. My goal was to get somebody to open their minds to the possibility that this was designed not by the blind watchmaker, but by the great God himself. Amen. So that's the end of this series for this time. I leave frustrated again. <laughs> because we have not touched the veritable hem of the garment. But I do appreciate you. And I do know this. Churches can handle about three of these. <laughs> and, then, and then it's like, uh. So thank you for being the attentive, audi attentive audience that you have been. And for the blessed privilege of speaking to you to honor our great God.